can start seeing new uh, teams as the bamboo, not bamboo, in a pine floor where you can see a world in a grain of sand, a heaven in a wildflower, or infinity in the palm of your hand, and eternity in an hour. That's a poem by William Blake in the 17th century. So these are places where you literally, your mind, fullness gets strengthened. And that's a really cool part, because that means you start off being really sleepy, and you notice how to allow the, mind, the energy to start building up and building up. And it doesn't just stop at normal mindfulness. It keeps going. You get really sort of um, energized, and powerfully energized, sorry. And also really, that's holy water, by the way. <laughs> and really powerful um, uh, mindfulness. So a lot of happiness and joy. And it's also that means the mindfulness is incredibly strong. So whatever you want to see, you can see what's going on. Also, <coughs> with sleepiness, the first year I was again in Thailand, when we used to do the all-night sits once a, once a week, you get to 9, 10, 11 o'clock, and you're really sleepy. But then I remember about a year before then, I used to go to all-night parties, rock concerts, and when you got to about 11 or 12 o'clock and you were listening to Grateful Dead or The Doors, I never felt sleepy at all. <laughs> what was the difference? And the difference was you were enjoying what you were mindful of when you're going to some party or some concert. But when you're meditating, you weren't enjoying it. Which is why you turned off and went to sleep. That's the second part. To enjoy the meditation. Get some fun going. Some happiness. Smile for goodness sake when you're meditating. Simple things like that go a long way to overcoming stuff and talk. Otherwise, if you just bring the mind back, it wanders off again, bring the mind back, it wanders off again, bring the mind back. You do that for six or seven years. <laughs> so you think something's going wrong. So restlessness in particular, I gave a simile to try and make it clear. Suppose you had an afternoon free and one of your friends called you and said are you free this afternoon? He said yeah can you come round for a cup of coffee? There's this coffee shop it's really cool and delicious coffee and he said well yeah well, what type of coffee? and they say something you don't like I don't know some really expensive coffee, like that coffee which comes from Indonesia, from Badalampang, which comes out of the backside of a, of a civic cat. <laughs> In other words, it's all mixed up with the shit. But anyway, people say it's nice, I don't know. But anyway, he said, no, I don't want to, but then you're already committed. So we're going to go there, we're going to drink that, you're going to have like a chocolate chip muffin, I don't care, you're fat or got cholesterol problems, 
they're going to talk about politics, none of this stupid religion or Buddhism stuff. This is important stuff about politics. We're going to sit there for one hour, can't do less, can't do more, because that's all the time I've got. Now, if you got a call and you were told what you're going to drink, what you're going to eat, where you're going to sit, what you're going to talk about, for how long, would you like going out with a person like that? No. A control freak. In my story, you'd make up an excuse. Say, oh, I've just forgotten. I've got a dentist appointment this afternoon. <laughs> and to make sure you don't blow your precepts and lie, as soon as you put the phone down or turn it off, you ring up your dentist to make an emergency appointment. <laughs> and after making the appointment with your dentist, you get a call from another friend who says, how are you feeling this afternoon? So I just got an appointment with the dentist. Oh, that's really such a shame. There's this coffee shop you always <laughs> keep recommending. You think it's a great place to go. And that you say, the, um, I don't know, the, the cookies are to die for over there. They're so healthy, but they're so good for you. And you've always been talking about this Buddhism uh, business. You know, I've never really been interested in that, but it seems to do so much good for you. I'd love to talk about it with you. And so if you get an invitation from a friend who wants to eat what you want to eat, drink what you want to drink, sit where you want to sit, talk what interests you, not what interests them, what happens? You say, well, the dentist appointment's not that important. <laughs> I'll be there. And you don't just stay there for an hour. You spend all afternoon there because you're interested, you're engaged with somebody who's talking what you like to talk about. Now, can you see what restlessness is? You tell your mind, you're going to watch the breath, and you're going to watch it this way, not that way, and you're going to sit for one hour, not 45 minutes, not an hour and 10 minutes, and you're not going to go and sit on these chairs. You're going to, Matt, no, this is tough. We're going to sit on the floor. Let's do it properly. Broken glass. Turn off the aircon, we're going to be tough. Enlightenment or bust. <laughs> and if someone tells you to do that, of course you rebel. Your mind runs away. Anything to get away from you. But if you tell your mind, hey mind, you've got an hour in the temple, with your eyes closed, the nuns don't know what you're thinking about, what you're doing. <laughs> so what do you want to do? And if you're nice to your mind, you're a good friend to it, and the mind says, oh yeah, well, yeah. Uh, you know, well, it makes the, the bikinis, the venerables, very happy. Let's try some meditation. You don't force it. So your mind wants to meditate. And certainly that's the case with me. That my mindfulness, my, my mind and me, were just such good friends. So if you have a chance to chill out together, to hang out together, I've got my eyes closed, I don't have to talk to anybody or give any, any instructions. And I say, hey, nice to see you again, where you been? Oh, I've been traveling and talking to people and stuff. And I say, wow, let's hang out together, yeah. So we just hang out together, effortlessly, for a long period of time. I don't set the clock and say you've got to meditate for an hour or 15 minutes, you just meditate there and, wow, the hours gone past. That was me. 
You just enjoy yourself. Where there's enjoyment, there is no need for restlessness, nor for sleepiness. So see if we can get some joy coming up with the meditation. Simple things. I don't know if you do mantras. Now we have the Tibetan mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum. Anyone know what that means? Maybe you do, but this will read by. So instead, when you're watching your breathing, to do a new mantra, which I've been promoting. And so it goes, as you breathe in, you say to yourself, relax. Okay? Relax. And as you breathe out, to the max. <laughs> <laughs> to the max. To the max. Relax. To the max. Some more effort into it. Relax. To the max. Bit of fun. And also, there's a lot of joy and peace. Telling you what to do. People are stressed out. Okay, that's the first question. We're still about half an hour. Yeah, so are you ready for another one? Yeah, go on. Okay. So, one of the things that we're um, quite aware of here, and we're very pleased that in this area there is so much going on with Buddhism. Yeah. And we also notice that there are quite a few times when we hear that people are saying things the Buddha said that we don't think the Buddha ever said. Yeah, the Buddha so, couldn't speak English. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> or even anything in Pali or something yeah. like it, right? Yeah. So we try to focus on the suttas as much as we can. Excellent. But we're wondering if you have any advice for us in trying to like sort out the mix of Buddhism and other religions, the mix of yeah. Buddhist sayings and things the Buddha didn't say and just yeah. whatever help you can give. First of all, uh, I've had a very fortunate life even as a monk and uh, once I did visit Sri Lanka and had the good fortune of uh, visiting um, Bhikkhu Bodhi and Jnana Ramata and Jnana Ponika when they were still all alive and uh, Venerable Jnana Polika, who said something to me which I will never forget, is that if you are looking at the teachings of the Buddha from the suttas, you never interpret the Dhamma because of one or two ambiguous passages. In fact, you interpret the ambiguous passages in terms of the great mass of consistent, clear, and precise uh, teachings in the Pali Canon. Sometimes it's boring to say the only way to enlightenment is Eightfold Path because that means that you know it's uh, we have to do a lot. But to find out some easy way, shortcut. People love shortcuts. And you know what the shortest cut is? This is a very short cut. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's the, usually the best way. 
the number two is um, I've tried this and uh, hopefully other people can take it further that when you do translations from the Pali into any language a lot is lost in those translations which is one of the reasons why when we do translate we should never translate word for word the unit of language is a sentence or a phrase so we translate phrases not sentences so phrases, sentences, not words word for word just makes it just not interesting sentence by sentence that's interesting and it's also if you do word for word it really gets so boring so even just simple things like the breath meditation breathing a long breath uh, you know you're breathing in a long breath breathing out a long breath you know you're breathing in a long breath no breathing out a short breath you know you're breathing out a short breath breathing in a short breath you know you're breathing in a short breath why can't we say that when you're breathing or breathing out you know whether it's short or long it's simple no just translate it into English for goodness sake instead of stuff which is just goes so long that people just um, get turned off So simple things like that. But there's also some of the translations can be very, very um, confusing and can actually block people, people's practice. And of course, you know, one of, one of the most biggest ones is a translation for samadhi and calling it concentration. That has caused more problems in Buddhist meditation, this is my view, uh, than any other mistranslation. You call it stillness, now you're getting close to its meaning. Stillness. If it's concentration and you go on a retreat, it becomes a concentration camp. And my goodness, it feels like it sometimes. And it's a lot of effort you get tired and frustrated. If it's stillness, how do you become still? If you haven't seen this before, I sort of get tired of doing the stimuli, but anyway, <coughs> are you an honest nun? Yes. Right? Okay, so I want you to be honest, not respectful. Okay. <laughs> so I am now going to, and my goal is to keep this uh, in this uh, mug perfectly still that's my goal is it stop moving yet venerable no sir very good because I, I wasn't mindful and I'll be mindful has it stopped moving yet no nope. because I'm not concentrating I will now be mindful and concentrating <laughs> and honestly I'm, I mean, I'm trying it's still moving was it more, moving more, moving less? About the same. Okay. Because usually it actually moves more when I concentrate. <laughs> <laughs> so how can I get this 
uh, liquid to be perfectly still. Yeah, I'll put it down. It actually moves more when I put it down. But then I wait, and in a short while, effortless, easy. It's pretty still. Pretty still, yeah. <laughs> so that is how we meditate. And this was also taught by Ajahn Chah. He would put his hand up and he'd move his hand up and down. And he said, this is a leaf on a tree. It only moves because something outside of it, the wind, is making it move. If you take that wind away, the leaf would still move, but less and less and less until it became perfectly still all by itself because that is the default position of a leaf on a tree it only moves because something is shaking it he said that's exactly the same with the human mind it only moves because something is making it move you wanting something or not wanting something trying to get something but if we let go, renounce, give up, well, of course the other way to keep the teeth perfectly smooth. But <laughs> <laughs> still is to drink it. See, now it's gone to cessation. <laughs> I also made the air, air con go to cessation. If you get warm, let me know. Yes, very good. Okay. Excellent. But that's uh, a great way of how we meditate. Be patient. Don't do anything. Just sit there. Relax to the max until the mind settles down all by itself. Mm. And that becomes brilliant because you don't do anything. It's not up to you, your sense of self. And you doing it. You hear me say this uh, before, but it's a little trick because I do have these rules which I'm supposed to keep. I do keep and one of those rules when people ask for any personal experiences or attainments. Sometimes it's really frustrating when you can't tell anybody. So I decided to, um, when people said, I write books about jhanas, the real ones, I mean the deep ones, not the fake ones. And they asked me sometimes, Ajahn Brahm, can you do the jhanas? You know what I tell them? I say no. I say Ajahn Brahm can't enter jhana. And people go, oh, fate, fraud! I'm not going to come and listen to any of his talks ever again. And then I say Ajahn Brahm can't enter jhana. Ajahn Brahm has to vanish first. I have to disappear. Your sense of self and the will and all this struggling and striving business, that has to stop. So when you disappear, then these jhanas happen. But Ajahn Brahm takes no responsibility for it. <laughs> <coughs> you understand? Mm -hmm. It's a saying which was in the Visuddhi um, Magga. The path is, but no traveller on it is seen. Mm. Brilliant. 
if you try and do the meditation and take it as a personal achievement mm. or more likely a personal failure <coughs> then you find you're going in the wrong path you're trying but you just let go just stay there, watch disappear see what happens conditions are right then these things happen they're not right of course they don't happen <laughs> but this is a path of disappearing of being a loser as I said in one of those books I got this path wisdom publications they asked me to just write a forward to this book and I said this is the art of disappearing the art of not gaining things but losing things so I mm. wished everybody having read this book may all get lost <laughs> <coughs> be a loser not a gainer lose all your attachments all your past and your future all of your agitations be, be a loser very hard to be a loser. Even recently, I was, I don't know why I did this, but it was very helpful to give a new story to tell to people that uh, in Australia, even if you're over 60, you can apply for an uh, Australian <laughs> seniors card. Not that I get anything from it. <laughs> <coughs> I thought, well, why not? So I applied for one. I had to go into the offices for an identity check because there's identity fraud these days so I, I went in there and they said can you please prove who you are <laughs> and I said for 45 years I've been trying to do that and I still <laughs> haven't managed <laughs> so that's not what we mean so show us your ID card so I don't have an ID card well show us your driving license I don't have a driving license. <laughs> Show us your uh, rental agreement. Don't have that. Show us your um, bank account. Don't have that. Show us your, uh, what else? Uh, credit card. Don't have that. Uh, show us your marriage license. They didn't ask for a marriage license. <laughs> don't have that. And so they looked at me and said, you don't exist. And I said, wow, the Buddha was right. <laughs> <laughs> but imagine so if you're a monk and all these things which define you in this world you don't have so that's really nice when you just don't exist <laughs> you're off the radar so anyway just uh, this is why as a monk as a nun as a practitioner you try to disappear more and more and more Nice. I don't know what you do with me here. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I'd just come in and say hello, have a cup of tea, and then go back. But anyway, mm -hmm. I'm here, so well, someone's here. Well, that kind of leads to the next Good. question. Good. It's kind of we we're interested in your advice for us and Karuna Buddhist Vihara because it feels like we'd like to disappear more. Yeah. And. Um, the truth is, we're kind of working all the time. 
a lot of the time. And if we take the vision forward and make this bigger, we're going to work even more. But the two of us really want to strive for Nibbana. And do you see, like, do you have some advice about how to, like, do that? that? Simple. Yeah? Good. (laughs) Just don't strive for anything. (laughs) Striving for Nibbana. If you want Nibbana, forget about it. Because striving, what does striving mean? Where's that coming from? It's coming from the sense of self, the wanting to do something, wanting to get somewhere. It's just you know, spiritual materialism. I don't think it feels that way to yeah. us. Yeah. It feels more like, you know, the one thing we said when we became the Kunis yeah. is... Is Nibbana, Satyakarmataya. Not end, as a uh, personal game. But for ending suffering. Yeah. Now that is a much better goal for well, attaining the body. it. But you say it a different way. Okay. For attaining a goal, just to end suffering, for stillness, to be peaceful, mm-hmm. to let go, to renounce. How do you have renunciation? These are the, again, going back to core teachings of the Buddha, the second factor of the Eightfold Path. The uh, right, uh, sorry, it's, it's Samma Sankhapa, which is Nekama Sankhapa, Awayapada Sankhapa, and Ahingsaka Sankhapa. The first one, Nekama, is meant giving up, letting go, renouncing. So it's not just renouncing the world so other people can feed you and look after you, it's renouncing even what you want. Renouncing just your own comfort. Just renouncing, letting go, giving up as much as you can. And then, uh, kindness. Mm-hmm. Kindness to your own health and to the health mm-hmm. of others. And this beautiful gentleness and patience. And especially the renunciation. The renunciation of uh, a mendicant. There's so many things which you can't do. And there's so many things which uh, give you a boost in renunciation, which, uh, please excuse me, that ten preceptors, eight preceptors, five preceptors just can't, can't get. Just having a place where there's, there is, you know, no um, phone or you can restrict the use of um, internet. Mm-hmm. And to see if you can just have days, weeks, when you're going to do a retreat. You do the retreat, not teach the retreat. And that inspires people. It was once in my life, it'd be great if we could do it again, when I had a six-month retreat, when I never saw a human, there's no exaggeration, no, never saw a human being for six months, never spoke for six months. And afterwards I was sort of concerned was I being really selfish mm-hmm. was that just you know, looking after my, my own practice but people said that was really inspiring <laughs> to see you could do that mm-hmm. so you go off and do a six month retreat and then you have to look after the shop for six months <laughs> 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 or, or just taking it in turns or whatever <laughs> but isn't that inspiring when you see you have a bhikkhuni here, you can actually take time off. Because that's what the Buddha did. He went on retreats. Not teaching retreats, but did retreats. 
teaching through silence. You all have enough teachings. You know, you, you know how to practice. You know, you make mistakes sometimes, but to have inspiration. You know, if you just put you in a sort of little cupboard in the corner there, and just you know, with a sort of uh, like a drip, and what else can you make to keep you healthy? <laughs> No, to have, have some food, obviously, yeah. but just to be meditating for, for like a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. and just a bit of exercise, but no contact with other people. Mm-hmm. And you don't need to go up into a mountain for that. Goodness, you can do it. Some of the best places to be a hermit is even in the city. Mm-hmm. We don't have to talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. You become anonymous. Mm-hmm. So you can do that here, just have a little room. That's a meditation room and just lock yourself in. Come out for some exercise, maybe just in the early morning, but don't speak. Because mm-hmm. otherwise it's a it's an important point. Because of young monks, young nuns working their butt off, you know, trying to do organisation, admin <laughs> and talking, which is important, but to have time off as well couple of weeks and just you start really the lights coming out of your eyes and mm. because you really get sort of really get into it <laughs> but when you do do that just you know, do it properly mm-hmm. don't strive relax <laughs> to the max to the, no not to the max to the max <laughs> <laughs> oh by the way I want to yeah. thank you for being so supportive and kind to Chitananda when yeah, well, she, she was staying with you. Exactly. Why not? I heard her birthday was a big, oh, just beautiful. Anything <laughs> to have a bit of joy and fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's just thank you. Joy is just okay. It's not sort of in the uh, the I don't know the Theravada tradition to sing happy happy birthday to people. But I get, I know all the loopholes with the Vinaya because if I sing happy birthday, no one in their right mind would call that singing. (laughs) 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 I can simply do that for you. It's just that the customs of just happiness and joy. Yeah, maybe I should explain that I spent a Vasa in 2015? 17? I'm sorry, 2017 at Ajahn Brahms Monastery and her birthday happened at that time. And I think there was, you were going to go away or go into a retreat, retreat and probably, yeah. so many people came to the monastery because it was his last day out of re- until he would go yeah. into this big retreat. And he turns to her and he says, you know all these people are here for your birthday. <laughs> 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 it was a real uplift, yeah. I think, yeah. um, being there in a strange land called Australia. Yeah, not that strange. <laughs> But yeah, so that's why that that's part of the path. The second factor is the eightfold path: yeah. renunciation, but also kindness, mm-hmm. which is one of the other things which I was just for many years I was looking. Where's the kindness in the eightfold path? Mm-hmm. You know, you got right view, and people call it right thought, which is never like that at all. Mm-hmm. And it's just so hard. I'd even say masculine. But then you look. Where's well, c- compassion? Must be there somewhere because all the the monks and uh, nuns which I knew they're always kind. And there it was in the 
second factor of the Eightfold Path. Second part of that was this Awayapada Sankhapa, coming from motivations, coming from a heart of kindness. Metta, yeah, simple. A couple of weeks ago, a young man came here for our sutta study. He had never been here before, and yeah. I just asked him if he had much experience with Buddhism, and he said no. But he said, Buddhists have been kind to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Buddhists are kind, and I like being kind, and Buddhists are kind for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. Well, sometimes we're kind for a reason, but sometimes we're kind for no reason. So do both. <laughs> I have an easy question for you now. Okay. How, why does, well, I mean, we've been talking about this here quite a bit, and we have some of our own answers, but why do you think idle chatter made it into the top ten unwholesome things? Well, what, what does it mean by idle yeah. chatter? Yeah. Well, it's useless chatter. If there's a purpose to it, then fine. But a lot of times, I would actually extend that to, to um, useless emails. Mm-hmm. Put that instead of chatter. Or useless, whatever you do, or useless texts, messages. Because it wastes so much time. So of course there are some messages you have to um, to do, but we do too much. So because of that, that it does consume far too much energy it should be more peaceful and it's okay not to answer the emails you don't have to answer every message can I tell them you said it was yeah okay, okay yeah. thank you <laughs> because otherwise sorry yeah because yeah. otherwise you know you just sometimes people just can't sleep at night because they're worried about this message and, and the world doesn't end if you don't answer your emails what's your favourite button? <laughs> delete delete yeah that that's Buddhist <laughs> delete. what's the worst button? save <laughs> <laughs> yeah no save but delete so we have one more question no, no, <coughs> we have one more and then maybe yeah, yeah, okay, if yeah. you're still up yeah, for sure. it so um, we were teaching a retreat in Washington State and got wind of uh, some things some of the lay people have decided they want to write letters to some of the, the monks in the Ajahn Chah tradition yeah. telling them how important they think it is for them to support the Kuni ordination yeah how they'd like to support them, but they don't want to until they start attending or, you know, helping with ordinations, giving Ovada, reading yeah. Vicku Analia's book, and looking into, like, white privilege. Yeah. Do you, can you give any advice for an appropriate approach or something that would be really helpful to move? This is targeted really yeah. at Western monks. Yeah, but I think that I'm not sure I've been out of that loop for a while. I think many of those Western monks are afraid of um, you know, the response in Thailand. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how long that can last. Yeah. Thailand has changed, and as Thailand has changed, modernized, uh, many of those senior monks, very senior monks, realize 
that is unsustainable, it is irrational, it's not supported by uh, arguments from the Vinaya. And so I don't know why they, they can't just uh, start ordaining bhikkhunis in their monasteries. Be a nice thing to do. So anyway, the, um, talking about non-self, but uh, it was interesting that recently some of the supporters in Australia, <laughs> they were writing to uh, the government in Australia uh, because they give these like awards out from the Queen of England's birthdays. So I got one this year, <laughs> and it was for uh, not just serving Buddhism, but for promoting gender equity <laughs> in Buddhism. Yeah. That, was, that was the reason why I accepted that. It was really cool. Because yeah. <laughs> what it was showing is that it was um, important for you know, all people. Yeah. And it was... Uh, important for governments mm -hmm. and for our ministers that uh, religious leaders were um, sensitive, uh, proactive and realised the importance of gender equity. Because you know, you know some of the problems which are faced when there's um, sexual abuse whether it's of children, whether it's of uh, disciples, uh, whatever that is, you do find when females have positions of leadership, it is much less. It doesn't disappear, but still, when the male hierarchies, and I'm saying this because I'm a male, and I know what hierarchies are, when those male hierarchies are reduced, and then there's less possibility of that happening. And even right now in Australia, this fellow Cardinal Pell, you know, he was one of the senior, one of the really senior Catholic clergy uh, in Australia, uh, no, in, the in the world, you know, possible Pope, if he didn't get sort of accused of uh, sexual abuse of children. And... So it's big news all over the place. And it's ridiculous that that sort of stuff could happen. So, but when there's uh, females sort of in positions of authority, it doesn't happen so much. You keep us guys in line. <laughs> it's not only that, it's also gender equity, and that's of uh, gender fluidity as well. Yes. Which is also important. So I'll ask you a question. Is it alright? Is it allowable for gay, uh, lesbian, transgender to ordain? So we've been talking about it. Of course. So it'd be done. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, at the time of the Buddha, right? Yeah. I mean, we get asked that question, do you change gender on the full moon? <laughs> <laughs> no, we've already done it. It's in some great uh, young monks, not young monks, they're senior now, 
they were very well-known gay practitioners. Yeah, sure. Obviously, just when you're uh, ordained, you have to keep your precepts, so, uh, you know, mm-hmm. you're celibate. But the door's open. But Why? I think the thing we've been, people have been asking is transgender. We feel like whatever gender yeah, you're you, identifying with, that's the group you go to. That's right. And if you feel comfortable there, and they feel comfortable with yeah. you, and you can do that. Well, the first time, it's just, you know, okay, this is uh, a gay fellow. He's, he's just looking, good meditator, really lovely fellow, and was always um, supporting monastery in Perth. So, you know, I asked, can I become a monk? And he was, well, no, it wasn't like, um, he'd come out a long time ago, so it's well known. And so, well, instead of saying, why not, give it a try. I asked him, what would you do? in a male monastery, if a guy came in there and it was really, really hot, you know, what would you do? And he said, well, I'll just go back to my hut and lay down for, <laughs> until I cool down. <laughs> yes, you know, because they have that sexual, inter- mm-hmm. sexual attraction there. But then that's just what happens with a male monk, if a sort of a hot girl comes in, you know, to the monastery. So as long as you can practice your celibacy there, then why not? But it also got really even more interesting when what about um, mental difference? I don't like calling it mental mm. illness anymore, mental mm. difference, schizophrenia. Mm. I have two monks who are schizophrenic, clinical schizophrenic in Boning Island Wales. They're doing a great job. And you would never know it. Mm. They were mindful, kind. Sometimes they uh, can't get up for the morning meditation. Fine. <laughs> but they're doing a really good job. They're aware, they're kind, they're wise. And they can meditate. So it's opening the door and just giving people a chance. See what they do. If they can, carry on. If they can't, well, you gave it a try. I think it's really cool being able to do what's especially I was really proud because I always was afraid mm. of actually having people with you know, clinical schizophrenics meditate because if they were um, had a psychotic episode they would just suck up so much energy from the monastery and from the other people but you know not all of them but some give them a try mm. and they just took it with I was so proud of them mm. They're my boys. <laughs> you know, it is, Phil. Sometimes as a senior monk, I must admit, I don't know if that's attachment or not, but I think, ah, oh, you well done. You, I gave you just a half a chance and you took the whole thing and just well done. It's Mudita, huh? Yeah, Mudita, yeah, that's a good. Can um, yeah, ask okay. questions? Yeah, we got your hand half up. Oh, I was itching my hand. Yeah, sorry, half up. Do you want to ask any questions? Not at the moment, thank you. Okay. Any questions? She's right there. Yeah. Um, So, um, it seems like it's relatively easier to um, apply the practice towards sort of unwholesome states of mind, you know, when there's anger or jealousy or hatred. Um, it's natural to want to get rid of that and, and yeah. mm. I think apply the practice towards it. Um, 
but it just it seems like it's so much harder yeah. um, towards anything that's like in the area of indulgence. You know, even simple yeah. things like like food or material things. Yeah. And intellectually, you can know that that's also suffering, yeah. but um, you can really be tested with yeah. that at times. And I don't know if you have any. Yeah, I know. Just if it's like indulgence, just don't beat yourself up. You know, if you eat too much, I don't. <laughs> but I guess even more serious things then. Yeah, and No, it's sometimes that you try your very best for keeping the precepts, keeping it limits, so you <coughs> hurt yourself. But then after a while, is you see that people with addictions, especially, they always say that they don't think they have any sense of their self-worth, they're not worth um, helping, they're not worth giving up their addictions. It's a reaction to a lot of negativity in their life or disappointment or whatever. So a lot of times that this is where a Vihara <coughs> community like this really helps. You feel like you belong, you have some really good friends. These are not friends which are in a, like a family situation, but just a good community. We build you up, make you feel good. If you make you feel good, give you some energy, and basically give you some kindness, some love, then you find actually you can learn your own self-love. You realise you're not such a bad person as you thought. And I say that carefully because a lot of people think they're just not really, they can't do it, they're not really up to it. And because of that, that a lot of people um, have an inner negativity towards themselves, which is one of the root causes mm. of indulgence and lack of forgiveness. They're running away from something. So anyway, the, one of the little metaphors which really works, which I'm sure you've heard before, but I really um, developed this uh, talking with people with mental health issues. And that was the simile of the forest. And, no, just do it. Just go to a forest and just find the perfect tree. That's what you go looking for. And you find, number one, there's not, no such thing as a perfect tree. <laughs> but number two, there's something which you know is a beautiful tree. Mm. And a beautiful tree, that's the one which you're attracted to. And that's twisted. Mm. And that's bent. And it's broken. And it's damaged. And you find you love that tree. It's beautiful. And then you realise that all the damaged and broken people in this world, they belong. They belong in the forest called humanity. And the most twisted and bent and broken and damaged are some of the most beautiful trees you could ever find. The sort you'd always want to go and stay with and hang out with and sit mm -hmm. next to. And when you understand that, you think, there's nothing wrong with being damaged, being broken. Ah. <laughs> and that just starts to give you an idea of self acceptance and self love. And then a lot of the problems with schizophrenia, ADD, autism, and Whatever else has happened to you in this world, 
a lot of those problems tend to evaporate when you understand that simile. And then you don't need to indulge anymore. Just where you are. You're at peace with yourself. When you're at peace with you know, who you are, you know, your history. One of the reasons why that we have uh, mindfulness, being in the present moment, but how the heck do you let go of the past and future? Mm. Especially the past, which has really sort of bothered you. Or the future, the fear. And one of the most important things to remember is be, be kind mm -hmm. to your past. And be kind to your future. Give it kindness, give it compassion. Instead of hating it and just trying to get rid of it. That just makes it more solid and strong. That instead, we just, we're so kind to the past. That's made me who I am. When you're kind to it, you see the bright side of it, then it's easy to let go of. It's not a problem. The same with the future, who knows what's going to happen. But, when you're kind to it, it might be something really nice. So, be kind to your, your future. And be kind to your past. And it's easy to let it all go. It's not a problem, it's not busyness anymore. If it's a problem, then you've got to do something about it. More stuff to do. <laughs> anyway, that's just... I jump on psychology and psychiatry. We've got the... There are some questions okay. that you answered already. <laughs> okay. Because I'm a bit sort of down on... Are there any psychiatrists or psychologists here? Some of the stuff which people do to one another. Put them in boxes and labels. You have ADHD. Sometimes I'll spell that wrong. I say ACDC. There's a way to sit. All those boxes people put you in. Who you are. Because this is something I learned even as a, as, uh, as a teacher. People, if you tell a person that this is your problem, you tend to live up to it. You become it. Even all the times when I went into prisons and said, oh, be careful of him. He's just a murderer. That's a thief. That fellow over there is a rapist. What are you talking about? That wasn't a rapist. That was a person who'd raped. Mm. That's totally different. That wasn't a murderer. You killed two people. Does that make you a murderer? Two things which you've done in your life defines you forever. There's much more than that. And it's incredible to see people who have done some really, really bad things. They, you can't lessen or diminish the hurt which they've done to other people, let alone to themselves. But actually to see past that block of negativity and remorse of what they've done, and see them much, much more than that, made a huge difference in their lives. Mm. Which means that they had a, a future, there's more to them. And it's so beautiful to see that, to see even in each one of you. You say, well, you know, can I get enlightened? Can I get jhanas? Just the idea that inside each one of you is beautiful stuff. Just waiting to come out. 
you look for that beautiful, you look for that good, that kindness, watering the, the flowers instead of watering the weeds, the partner you live with in life, I said, well, you don't know what they're like, living with a person like that. Of course I don't know what they're like, but you don't know what they're like either. Huh. So how about looking a little bit further than your past experience? Seeing something beautiful and good in them. How can you judge another person when you don't even know yourself? When you live with yourself 24-7? You're judging the person you live with. Doesn't f sound very rational to me or very helpful. <laughs> so instead, just have a look for something inside of them you haven't seen yet. The good stuff, the beautiful stuff, mm. the kind, the gentle, the generous, the soft part of them. And that's what they'll show you. And they'll be surprised. Well, I've got that inside of me as well. Mm. You bring it out. That's a nice thing, because that means that you start feeling good about yourself. You have that self-respect. Then, a lot of those addictions disappear. So, pick that really again, what it wholesome and unwholesome? Yeah, I, So, if we did practice, what it wholesome and unwholesome? We what? can compassion and kindness and help other people to be better instead of exactly. putting them at the duty. But then we still need to know what it really wholesome and unwholesome on our thinking, yeah. speaking, action, right? It's what is wholesome and unwholesome is actually just uh, uh, the relationship you have to what you're experiencing or to mm -hmm. another person. It's not a person. Can you say the sentence again? A relationship to... A relationship between things, uh -huh. not judging things. Uh -huh. Thank you. So you may have a murderer and you may have a rapist. It's a relationship between them. That's where the wholesomeness lies. Or the unwholesomeness. Now they've already done the act. Now just, what is the dynamics between people? What's the dynamics between you and Sloth and Torpor? Sloth and torpor is not against the precepts. Mm. But it's how do you react to the sloth and torpor? Mm. You take that as a personal fault. You blame people. It's your fault for just for for just giving me too much work to do. That's why I'm sloth and torpor. It's the relationship between things. Any scientists here because I was fundamental particle physics. There's no such thing as fundamental particles. It's the forces between things. Mm. You know, that is, a, is the basic building blocks of this uh, universe. You know, the stuff. It's, you know, it's not just bits and pieces of bricks you know, which make up this universe. It's just how they, are, they interact together. how human beings interact, how you interact with your body, with your mind. It's relationships. That's why, you know, what is wholesome? It is, you know, no greed, no hatred, no delusion. Mm. 
no selfishness, what is unwholesome, you know, things like loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy. I'm not calling it equanimity anymore. <laughs> I'm calling it contentment. Because mm. it had another word which was which was used for contentment, santuti. And I think I prefer putting that word contentment in the fourth Bhagavad Gita. Mm. Santusika. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's you, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so it's you're, a good goal. <laughs> yeah, contentment. Mm. But that's also that's contentment. But also the equanimity is contentment as well. Mm. Upeka. Because, mm. yeah, because the other one of, um, of you know, equanimity just sounds too cold mm-hmm. and too um, almost like heedless. You go past something which really needs fixing or doing. Ah, oh, just equanimous, let it go, mm. unattachment. Mm. But equanimity, I think, is just too hard. Anyway. Yeah. I had a thought that um, the Pali Canon, I like what you were describing, yeah. or sometimes can be very confusing or just yeah. not really. It's just boring. Yeah. A lot of it. And the, the concept of having in a, just a very conventional, simple language in English. Yeah. Um, would, it, it, would it be a disrespectful thing to make a translation or an adaptation of that and just sort of boil it down a hundred pages into one page to <laughs> summarize it? It's, it's, it's not disrespectful at all. You know, and it's beautiful. It brings the whole thing alive. It gets like new similes. Okay, it's uh, little things like a simile of uh, that somebody was shot with an arrow, and before that you took the arrow out, you would ask what type of person, what caste, whether they were the the Brahmin class, the worker class, or the other classes shot the arrow, and what type of uh, wood was it made of? And <laughs> that doesn't really cut it for people. So you have a guy was was shot with a bullet, and the first fellow would actually ask, oh, "Who shot the bullet? And exactly, just why did they shoot it? And uh, where did they shoot it?" And said, that's absolutely stupid, ridiculous. You know, they call 911. <laughs> and they do that first of all. And instead of asking all these, these stupid questions, which is like what happens when a lot of people get a lot of suffering, and they try and philosophize about it. Mm. Just you know, do something, first of all. It changes similes. But there's even one which... Uh, I was talking about a few days ago, like for the, uh, it's Kemika, who's a, a non-returner. Mm-hmm. And it's trying to describe the difference between a non-returner and a fully enlightened Araha. And was saying, well, just like your person washes clothes with cow dung and leaves it out to dry, and the smell of the cow dung will be there for a little while afterwards. <laughs> now, what does that do when you read that in the suttas? I mean, <laughs> this is weird. No one uses cow dung in these days, towards clothes. 
<coughs> they say, somebody puts you know, their own in the washing machine. And when it comes out, you know, it still has the smell of the soap powder. So you put it on the line, air it, and the soap powder smell goes. The same simile, mm -hmm. but just you know, making it something which people can relate to, for goodness sake. So those are the sorts of things which I like doing. It's a lot of work. It would be a lot of work. Yeah. But anyway, because also the result of that is you get the main teachings of the Buddha and they just <laughs> they come down very quickly. That's mostly been done. Just, that's what I did with that word of the Buddha because that was also Jnana Tiloka uh, did that for 140 years ago. It hasn't been changed yet. Sometimes people revere old stuff too much mm. instead of just doing it new. And also, when you read in the suttas and they said, uh, monks, there are four noble truths. What does that do to you? You're not part of it. <coughs> or the lay people, you're not part of it. So you just say, uh, I put sometimes put meditators or, or um, guys or <laughs> whoever's listening. Practitioners. <coughs> friends yeah, but anything which is actually just widens it. Mm -hmm. Even though historically that could have been, almost certainly, as the Buddha was teaching to some monks. But yeah, I mean, just let's, let's make it more applicable to others. Do you think the bhikkhunis were as absent in real life with the Buddha as they are in the Nikayas? No, of course or not. Or distanced? Not distanced at all, because they were just too valuable. Mm. You know, see, there's a maze. No, look, honestly, I'm not just saying this to please you. This is just, you see that, when I read like the bhikkhuni and the terigata, and that was brilliant stuff. There's also there's, there's, there's other just great bhikkhunis, just you know, totally fully enlightened and just they meant it. And they're inspirational. Mm -hmm. well, of course, that uh, they would be really well known. Mm -hmm. So of course people go see them, and they become very popular, very famous. But I mean, also from the Buddha or from the monks, it's like there's oh. a distancing that I wonder if was real I can't see it but that's where the Buddha said I've, I've quoted this many times you know it really well when the Buddha said when he just got enlightened and Mara said okay I admit it you're fully enlightened so just great okay so you, you know but don't teach because no teaching it just takes so, so much time you could be meditating and, and relaxing enjoying yourself but he said no I will carry on teaching I will not die and pass away until we've established the fourfold assembly lots and lots and lots of enlightened monks and nuns and uh, lay followers, male and female. So when I've done that, then I can pass away. And so it was a mission. Now before there was any bhikkhunis, hmm. the Buddha had enough foresight, let's do it. 
There is a problem there. The problem that it took the Buddha 45 years from the time when he was enlightened to the time he passed away. And somebody reminded me that this wasa coming up soon, this is the 45th year since I went forth. This is a very dangerous year for <laughs> 45 years. <laughs> it's only messing around and joking. <laughs> That's a great little thing, yeah, go on. John, um, so if a person who has, um, who was raised in the actually to realize that they don't always think negative. Mm. That they, they feel there's some positive things they think. Just like it's changing perception. Simple things like in this room. Lots of people in this room. There's more space in this room than there are people. The volume in this room. Why is it we only see things? We don't see the space between things the gaps between stuff, the gaps between what we really notice is the negative things in our life and just the other stuff between them we don't tend to notice. This is just how we focus on the negative because that's how we've been trained, that's how we've been conditioned, that's why many people think this is an awful world, it's a terrible world. There's a huge amount of good stuff going on as well. That's kind people. But, we only notice the bad thoughts, the bad guys, the bad illnesses. There's much more than that going on. So that's one of the reasons why if there's somebody who has been brought up in a negative environment, it's only partially negative. Mm. That old story, which is one of the first stories in the first book which I wrote, The Two Bad Bricks, well, that just really nailed it for me. <laughs> you know, I, I saw these two bad bricks in a wall, and I laid them, <laughs> and I wanted to destroy the wall. I was embarrassed by it. That was all I could see, my mistakes. <laughs> so much so that I had nightmares. Three months I suffered until someone pointed out there were nine, that's actually more than 998 other bricks a huge number of other bricks but the only ones I saw, the only ones I thought about were the bad ones <coughs> I had mistakes and they upset me so much that you know, if I did have a, the wheel of a bulldozer, I'd have bulldozed it over and started again I was embarrassed until realize that's ah, it's okay two mistakes is not bad and also that builder who came along and said afterwards in a cancer group he said oh, don't worry about two bad bricks every bricklayer who builds a house with bricks they all make mistakes but he said in the building industry 
mistakes which our builders make, we tell our clients their features. <laughs> and we charge them a few thousand dollars extra for it. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? Because it's that mistakes which you make. You don't get negative about them. You celebrate them. They're your features. What a wonderful thing that is. Features are great. Make mistakes. And tell everyone about it because it's really fun. Okay. Um, after a few months, the two I know we always worry about sickness and death. Mm. So when we did not see if no cell gets, what do you recommend uh, to live or recommend other people when they gain serious sickness or they go to die? Yeah, well, that's great. Well, if you're sick, how many people here have never been sick? You've all been sick? In fact, if one of you put your hand up and said you'd never been sick in your life, you would be weird. <laughs> There'd be something wrong with you. You would not be normal. They'd take you to the nearest hospital and do experiments <laughs> on you. That's how strange you would be. So I think I can um, say that it's normal to be sick. It's right to be sick. So, next time you see your uh, GP, your doctor, whatever, don't go up to the GP and say, there's something wrong with me, I'm sick. Always tell them, there's something right with me, I'm sick again. <laughs> Stop sick stigmatising sick sickness. When you stop stigmatising it and being afraid of it, you may have sort of a lump on your breast somewhere and you just go and see the doctor straight away. Is there a thing, oh no, no, this can't be cancer, no, no, it's just too, too threatening for me. No, no, it's just, just, a, just a bump or something. That's why we're, sickness becomes a, uh, like a two bad brick in a wall. Mm. We don't recognise it at all. So don't stigmatise sickness. The same with, with um, death. You're all good people. So, what's going to happen to you when you die? You either get a good rebirth, maybe in the heaven realm. Suppose the venerables who know you much better than I do, they say to you, well, you know, you, you know maybe you've got some terrible disease, maybe stage four cancer or something, and they say to you, look, you're such a good person. I can guarantee you're going to go to some wonderful heaven well. <laughs> what do you want to hang around here for? <laughs> you tell your old colleagues, you know, bring it on. Just, you know, I've lived enough in this life, and so just go to heaven soon, so why am I afraid of death? It's like you're in, in prison, you're going to be free tomorrow. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so it's just what it's doing here is taking away the stigma of sickness and death. One of the advantages of Buddhism and so even like uh, uh, um, Hinduism, you know, because in the main US society, we're just terrified of dying and death. We don't know what we're talking about. There's nothing wrong with death. People do it all the time. <laughs> and if you know what death was like, Sometimes the dying process can be a bit unfortunate, 
But actually death itself, once you get past that point <laughs> and you're dead, it's wonderful. So free, peaceful. There's just so many wonderful stories about this. Uh, can't go past a BBC documentary. This is old English woman. And you know, she had many, many operations. And it was just really sort of hard for her, even just when she was at a you know, good health, it was a bit of pain and suffering. But anyway, she uh, was had an operation, and she died on the operating table, you know, but had a near-death experience. She came back, but the wonderful thing about her story is as soon as she died, and uh, the doctor would try to bring her back, she met this spirit on the other side, or just whatever you want to call it, and the spirit said, oh, you've got to go back. It's not your time to die yet. She said, I don't care, I'm not going back. <laughs> we have to. No way! <laughs> I'm not going back to that wreck of an old body. No, I'm out of this, and I'm free, and I'm not going to go back, ever. But you have to. But I won't. But you must. I demand my rights not to go back. <laughs> and they had this argument on the psychic plane, or the astral plane, whatever you call it, <laughs> And it was only settled when this so-called spirit grabbed hold of her and just threw her back into <laughs> her body. And she came to. Now that was the way she described it. Yeah. But what was really fascinating was afterwards, she was doing this interview with the BBC. Then her face screwed up. I've never seen someone so angry before. And she said, that spirit... When I die next time, when I really die, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm, I'm going to find him. I'm going to find him. <laughs> and I've been planning all the terrible things which I'm going to do to him because what he did to me is unforgivable. She wanted revenge. <laughs> and the reason I tell that story because, you know, this is common understanding that once you're dead, you're free. At least for a while. <laughs> Would you like some water, Rajan? Yeah, because yeah, water. Steve, could you get because, Steve because or Lynn? Water. Could you? This is wet. Okay. Water, Yeah, water. Yeah. That's water. Yeah, that's Failed intelligence test. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's so hot though. Yeah. It's hot. Yeah. It's okay. Hot water. It's okay. It's simple. It's going all the way. But it was um, one of the best things with Adam Charles. Oh, this is ceramic. He would actually do this wonderful simile of holding up a cup. And he would say, can you, can you see the crack in it? Can you see the crack? No. And he yes. said, you know, it's microscopic. It's got a crack in it. And one day, that crack will open up. Someone will drop it, someone will kick it or something, and it will break. It's the crack of anicure. Fragility, uh. impermanence, death. And so because you know this is fragile, it's not going to last forever, it's going to break, that's why you care for it. Mm. Because you know that you're going to break, you're going to die. That's why you care for it. Because you know your loved ones and friends are not always going to be here. You know that. You don't deny it, you accept it, which means just your value of this life, of this day, becomes more important. Because it's cracked, you need to care for it much more. 
If this was plastic, <laughs> you could throw it around. It wouldn't matter, it could never be broken. But because you are broken already, you're all cracked. Some marks more than others. <laughs> 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 that means you've got to look after it and care for it. So actually just the negativity doesn't come in at all. Yeah, you know, your mum's going to die, your grandma's going to die if they haven't already. Friends <coughs> die, that means you care for them. You go. How, how do you deal, because there have been moments in my life when I've felt the overwhelming, and it feels overwhelming, love and beauty for myself and for others. How do you deal with the intensity of that? Just enjoy it. <laughs> Why well, try and get negative about the beautiful mm -hmm. feelings? It's one of the other things, a lot of times people are afraid of, of happiness. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the, the things, when you get into deep meditation, you just bliss out, big time. Mm. And a lot of times people are afraid of that. Mm -hmm. oh, no, it's just honestly that a few times that, you know, that you get used to it after a while, you think that no human being can, can, um, can take so much bliss. Mm -hmm. But I've got great insight that you can. <laughs> you can always take some more. Oh, good. <laughs> <coughs> and it's not going to cause attachments. Mm -hmm. It's a bliss of letting go. But you're disappearing. Nibbana paramamsukam. Nibbana is the, the extreme, ultimate happiness. That's a wonderful thing to know in this Buddha's mm -hmm. past. To bliss out. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, from your pictures before that you say that uh, out from the Buddha say we have to let grief, like you don't own anything, so we no yeah. longer exit into this world. It, but then we're still here, right? Yeah. So should we because attaching to all the, you know, all the greed, or you already say the car, power, job, money, and all that. That means for us to be able to achieve that, that's how we can be able to get into Nirvana. Yeah. We, so can you say clearly about existing in this world or not existing in this world compared with, you know, who love and then from the food yeah. addiction, please. Okay. Yeah, just, well, there's even the... Uh, the Buddha would always call about the Tiloka, the three worlds. And for a lot of times people you know, only have any sort of idea at all about you know, this world of you know, the five senses and five sense objects. Mm -hmm. Seeing, hearing, meditation, taste and touch. Basically stuff. Mm -hmm. I haven't got any idea of these other two worlds. And those are like the jhanas and stuff. This is you know, the mind, the sixth sense. Mm -hmm. And <coughs> that's a huge uh, thing to investigate and understand and, and know. To understand what I mean by that, there's one of my uh, friends uh, from university days, uh, his five-year-old daughter, uh, grade school in UK, I uh, was asked a question by the teacher, what's the biggest thing in the world? 
and it's that story. And the one kid put a hand up and said, my daddy? Because, you know, for a young uh, five or six-year-old, now your father is huge. Another one said, no, no, miss, an uh, uh, elephant is much bigger than her daddy. No, no, a mountain is much bigger. So it's getting somewhere. And then the daughter of my friend, uh, Samantha, her name was, she put up her hand and just stopped the conversation dead. She said, my eye is the biggest thing in the world. What do you mean? And the answer was, well, my eye can see uh, <coughs> her daddy. My eye can see an elephant and a mountain and so much more. If all of that can fit into my eye, <laughs> my eye must be the biggest thing in the world. That's a pretty logical argument, especially for a five-year-old. But then, of course, she can extend her insight and to say, your mind can see everything that your eye would ever see. And you can imagine things you'll never see in this world, real world. It can uh, hear, it can smell, taste, touch, and it can know. Know things again, which, in fact, you know, everything you can ever know can fit into your mind. Which means the mind is the biggest thing. And I never said in the world. You can know the world. Therefore the world can fit into your mind. The mind is the biggest thing. And that starts to really get you interested in what goes up on up the road at Stanford. Quantum computing. And all sorts of other weird stuff. Which is not supposed to really... It, it bends your mind. Or rather... It is their minds of bending reality, creating reality. Does truth exist or do we create it every moment? Challenging thoughts. Mm. And I love that sort of stuff. Uh, your experience, sit here, you have to sit there and then, you know, see if your mind First of all, just to keep precepts. Yes. That, because that simplifies your life. Mm -hmm. That's your actions of body and speech. Yes. And also just again associate with good people because if you associate with uh, other people sometimes you get just caught up in just the wanting more and just being selfish and building walls between countries and just not sort of being accepting it's so easy to be convinced of negative thoughts and then of course little by little as you keep your precepts and share what you have you don't need that much and it's it really is uh, part of our modern world you know, not to have big houses and big cars when you can have a small one. I was fortunate that my parents were poor, so simple thing, <laughs> just shared, a, shared a, the room with my brother, you know, for all the time, 17, 18 years, just growing up. You know, so slept in the same bedroom as him. 
yeah, we were two boys, so we'd fight. Because that's you know, just what you know, our little cubs would do. But he became a banker, I became a Buddhist monk. <laughs> the opposite ends, maybe you might say. But to this day, we love each other to bits. I think, well, how come that happened? I look back, it's because we grew up together. We, you know, we, we learnt, you know, how to tolerate, cooperate and love. Now if your kids have just their own room, they don't share with anybody, do they learn these wonderful skills? Then they're having brothers and sisters you literally grow up with in the same room. And you care for them. You fight. You care. Because there's no place to go. So little houses is great. I know with some of the people, some of you being in, in Asia, you've had a, much better than that, about six or eight to a room sometimes. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they're your brothers and sisters. You know, you do anything for them. Okay, what have you got? Okay. Oh, uh, yeah, I uh, jump on. Uh, I've heard you say in the past that, you know, suffering is the desire to be somewhere else other than or not. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm. I've heard you say that. I really, I really like that. How do you, how do we... How do we find peace in which, like, you know, we live here in the Bay Area, you know, we focus on, like, external circumstances, like money, status, yeah. we, you know, uh, how do you find contentment in the present, in being present, how do you find peace in which you, you always, we always have to work all the time? Yeah. <laughs> Chasing external circumstances, you know? Yeah. It's, it's always when there's something to do, uh, give it everything you've got. But a lot of times there's nothing you can do. So relax. And if you want to know how to really relax and why, well, that really helps you do well in your life and succeed and be productive. And earn lots of money which you can donate to this Vihara. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the... Uh, how heavy is this cup of water simile? How heavy is it? And if I keep holding this for one minute, then my arm will start to ache. After two minutes, I'll be in pain. And after three minutes, I'll be in agony and a very stupid muck. <laughs> what should I do when this gets too heavy to hold comfortably? Put it down. I don't throw it away. I put it down and rest for a little while. Maybe a minute. And maybe I've only got 30 seconds, so even after 30 seconds it feels lighter. Stress is only because you don't know when to put mm. down the burden and relax for a few minutes. You can do far more in your life, mm. be far more productive, innovative, if when you know your brain is stuffed, you know, it's not really sort of uh, producing the work it's capable of. It's not being inventive. That you, don't, you should put your, your cup down and rest for a while. In other words, go do some meditation or even listen to some soft music or anything, <coughs> but not pushing at your problem. When you were at school, had recess in the morning, lunch, recess in the afternoon. Why? <laughs> because that's the only way you can learn. The human brain cannot produce at a high level continuously 
for too many hours at a stretch. And you see that again and again and again. So they're in workforce, say in the Bay Area, you're pushing, 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 pushing. So you basically after a while your brain gets stuffed. You can be in front of a computer, you're just tired. So, you know, you, you can't even write a decent email. Words don't come, you can't innovate. So to be able just to relax and rest, relax to the max. You go back to your screen afterwards, and you get the three hours work done in two. High quality. And teach that to your kids as well. I've been teaching that a lot. I did that for years ago, I invented that similarly. And now so it comes back, people actually see it on the internet somewhere, somewhere, teaches that. It works. So what you're doing there is you're working efficiently. You also know how to relax. And when it comes to a certain part of your life, what are you working so hard for? And is it the case that it's time just to have lesser, how much do you need to live? What's most important to you in life is, you know, the biggest wealth is your friends. Your fa and the family sometimes, you don't choose your family. Sometimes you start with them. If you've got a good one, you're lucky. But your friends and associates, they can be like your wealth. Your real community and family. If you've got a good community, that is so well known to be great for your health and your psychological health and also of course for your prosperity. So see what we can do in this world, but if you really want to go for broken, just become a monk or whatever, just give it a try. Why not? I don't think Adele was here when you made your um, request for the next candidate. So. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> because if you're not married yet, if you haven't got caught there, or got a partner, just what a wonderful life it can be. Now, honestly, it just get so much bliss. And just at the same time, you can do so much more service for other people than you can do anywhere sort of in this world. Because when you're a monk or a nun, you've got some good meditation, you can see other things which can be done, like in health and in uh, psychology, psychiatry, cancers, schizophrenia, and all this sort of stuff. Which people are not not um, dealing with it very well. Mm. And you try a few things because as a monk, you can you can think outside the box because you live outside the box, mm. but you get some innovation going. Some of the stuff which you get up to is just groundbreaking and it works. I just wish it could somehow find some way to spread it out further. You know what it's like when somebody is, is about to commit suicide? Or someone has commit, committed suicide and you know, relationship are just re really just struggling and the amount of, of suffering that gives people. And you, and you can do something about it. What a wonderful thing that is to be able to do that. So my job satisfaction is huge. <laughs> the salary's no good.
but the retirement benefits <laughs> out of this world. <laughs> anyway, that's just being monastic. So anyway, my water's always almost dried up, so. Uh, yeah. So do you want anything else before I go? There's a question there. Yeah, 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 sure. My son's 16 years old, going to high school. Yeah. It's talking about God. So he came to me, Mom, do you believe in God? Is there God? Yeah. Uh, Can you give him this answer? Because uh, it's the best answer I've ever come up with. Because this was an answer which uh, I was pressed to give at a conference. And it was asked by in Australia he's probably the best known theologian uh, a guy called Father Frank Brennan and you know, he was um, asked to actually to basically form a team to write an ad addenda to the Australian Constitution the Human Rights Addenda but he never was accepted by unfortunately but you know, he was really um, totally respected by all pastors so when he asked me a question in public what's the Buddhist idea of God? And so this is how I answered it. And don't sort of say, oh, we don't believe in God. Because what that does is the answer just makes people mm. sort of um, uh, challenge each other. Mm. You know, you sort of respect one another enough to try and find some way to take that um, argument deeper. So when he said that, so what is the Buddhist idea of God? I was just uh, mentioning another person on the panel was a Benedictine abbot who I had some great conversations with. And I said, this fellow sitting next to me, he keeps on telling me that, uh, every, that one of his core beliefs is everybody is searching for God. Mm. And that's what he said. Now, I'm not going to support that or argue against it. I'm going to use that as a beginning point for this little argument. So, well, if he says, and I respect him, Everyone is, is searching for God. Now what do Buddhists search for? What do atheists search for? What do the, uh, the poor, the downtrodden, the abused, what are they searching for? What are Muslim terrorists searching for? So you say, well what are people searching for? They're searching for respect. It's one of the first things. People want to be respected and listened to and their point of view. You may not agree with it, but at least to give respect. People want to experience love and be able to give love to their family, to their friends, their community. And they want some form of peace, enough to eat, a safe place to live. They want um, um, kindness. Add to that list, what would you search for? What would you want? And I said, well, if everyone, my friend here, I expect everyone is searching for God, and I think all my friends would agree on that list, a really important one we want to search for, peace, prosperity, friendship, in our world, in our hearts, meaning, then that must be what God is. And there we go, that's Buddhist idea of God. Peace, freedom, love, respect, kindness. And so you can ask your 16-year-old son, well, you know, what would you want in this world? 
So if everyone's searching for God, then that's what you're searching for. And that's something which does build walls between people and people get conflicted. You know, that's what you know, he wants growing up in this world. Don't just say searching for searching for a nice girl. <laughs> a date for the prom. <laughs> but you know, just you can understand that, take that. So we have a little gift for you, a very small <laughs> gift, something we saw that reminded us of you. Okay, and, a uh, fat Buddha. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. That's a very nice one. And you know that um, one of the books which I wrote, which was the Bear Awareness book, mm-hmm. and that, that is very popular. <laughs> and one of the reasons is because, again, it was uh, me rebelling against the lack of kindness and softness in Buddhist meditation and in religion in general. And just anyone just can get a nice bear and cuddle it. And straight away, you know, the harsh, um, forceful, uncompassionate, aggressive part of a person just vanishes. But bears are cool. <laughs> <laughs> So that's a nice bath. But what I will probably do is I'll find a nice because I cuddle it mm-hmm. and after I cuddle it it becomes holy. <laughs> <laughs> and you got photos of this being cuddled good. So afterwards, uh, because uh, it's more important uh, that no, be taken. I've got so many bears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, we can auction it to the highest bidder. Oh, I've got a good bid. Yeah, I have a good friend who um, just got a fourth stage terminal cancer oh, yeah. diagnosis, and she has a son who's yeah. about to turn ten. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she's been told she's got like maybe three months. Oh, yeah, maybe. There's too many maybe. maybe. I know, that's what I think yeah. too. But I know too many people are supposed to have died 20 years ago. <laughs> I know, I'm trying to hold that. Yeah. Yeah. His name is Makani. I vote for Makani having the bear. Uh, the bear. We're going to actually auction it. Okay, there we go. Okay. <laughs> Donated. Any advice on that for the bear? Okay, because. I know from experience, over Australia we're fine, we've got sort of lots and lots of people, lots and lots of monks, lots of bills, but we can pay that easy enough. But over here, how much uh, do you pay in rent? 3800 a month. 3800 a month, that's $100 a... Uh, 38. 38, what, a day? Yeah, thirty-eight hundred yeah. a month. But how much a month? That's a uh, hundred dollars a month. No, it's more. Hundred and twenty-five a day. Hundred twenty-five a day. Yeah, that's a lot of money. How many people are here in this room now? One twenty-six exactly. One twenty-six. Okay. So how many people are here? About fifty, I'd say. Yeah. So, was this useful? 
Yes. You told today? Okay. So 120, 50, 150 people or something. Well, you know what to do. So the donation box is over there. So they can put the bear over there on the donation box. So you can pat it. As you, <laughs> as you go out. Take home. Keep a week. And oh, no, the last one has to go because yeah. to your, yeah. To the little boy. Okay, yeah. Okay. Because if you can afford it, I'm not saying that I can't, I don't have money, but I do remember this, I went to this talk as a, I was a student at Cambridge, but even at a great university, but expensive, my father had already died, my mother was struggling in government assisted housing, and so it was tough. I went to this talk and there was, there was a, a Tibetan nun, a, a Western, and she was telling about all the work she was doing over in, in I think, Bhut not Bhutan, I think in Sikkim or somewhere, with like a, an orphanage there. And she showed a few photos and I thought, oh, what the heck. I went to my bank the following day and got £20 out, which was about two or three weeks' food money. And I just, it was one of the best <coughs> donations I've ever mm. given. Mm. It hurt, I mean, it really did hurt. I had to sort of go hungry. And it was about a 19 year old guy that hurt. It was worth it. Mm. But are you up to that to actually to make sure you make this work? Yes. Yeah, because one of the yeah. things with ed giving any donations at all is you have to trust that the person here or the mm. people here are in it for the long term. If they don't just come and then they disappear and go somewhere else. You've seen these two, I've seen these two, they're really good nuns. Mm. So I'll give them my a stamp of approval. I have a better calculation actually. I did that. It worked for what? victories over there. What? So the calculation is 52 weeks for a year and for a week somebody provide accommodation for victories. 876 per year. One week. Every family. 52 families. Okay. Problem solved. Yeah. Well anyway, but you do it from the heart. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, they're worth it. Well, you're worth it. Yeah. yeah. We're all worth it. We we want to be here to help. Yeah. Yeah. Inspire. And I think we want to be here also to support you to practice. Yeah. Okay. The mutuality yeah. of the practicing. We we'll do it together. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming, Ajahn. Okay. We we. Uh, as we said, we had to calm ourselves down and stop bouncing off the walls after you wrote to us <laughs> saying you would come. No, I mean, you can't bounce off the walls because it's just, <laughs> <laughs> it could belong to you. That's probably what happened downstairs. That That's right. That was if I did. Okay. So, thank you, and we'll see you in Berkeley. Yeah. yeah. Quite likely. Can we uh, yeah, sure. pay respects, yeah. all of us? So if you want to um, pat the bear as you go out, but... Then yeah. you take it for that uh, poor yeah. little thing. Right. Yeah. Okay, so want to bow? Yes. Okay. A lot. Down. Up. <laughs> <laughs> Very good.